Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Okay, having worked on Wall Street for 20 years, there's a story on the terminal today that really hit close to home for me. It's a story where Bank of America is floating an idea to its traders to keep bonuses flat uh, relative to last year, despite a huge profit year uh, in the trading environment. To get some more details here, uh, we welcome Lenan Nguyen, finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Lenan, I've sat across the desk from my manager many, many times around this time of year arguing for a higher bonus. Hey, look how well I did. Look how profitable our desk was. That can I borrow you for a few year. minutes later on, Paul? I think. What's uh, that? I, can I borrow you for a few minutes? Like yes. A manager, I'd like you to meet. <laughs> exactly right. So, Lenan, it doesn't sound like there's going to be some open ears for that kind of discussion this year. That's right, Paul. I think the the sources we spoke to across the street obviously uh, think that this is not enough. Um, you know. It's been a manner year for trading desks. So the reality is that they have jumped, uh, you know, huge amounts. And Bank of America, I think, is on the lower end of the desks that have done extremely well throughout this year. Um, so it comes as a kind of bitter pill at your end uh, to see that their bonuses are probably being going to be flat, and that you know managers are managing expectations about uh, a more gloomy environment. So, I mean, given that a lot of people are experiencing reductions in pay, will it be something that traders will just have to eat or will they look to other banks to see what they're doing? How does this go down? Well, Vani, right now it's going down like a lead balloon, (laughs) as you can imagine. But B of A is a consumer bank. You know, right now, less than a fifth of its net income comes from trading. And on top of that, you know, there is this legacy of a financial crisis and the, the optics of paying big bonuses when the rest of the economy is doing so poorly is something I think the bank's leadership is acutely aware of. So I don't think there are a lot of options here. Of course, as Paul says, you know, managers will advocate for their staff. They will point to those strong P&L numbers and say, hey, look, we made a big contribution to, to the banks um, making money this year, um, so we need to be properly compensated for it. But I'm not sure that that's going to be particularly convincing given this terrible environment that the rest of the U.S. economy is in. So, Lynn, when I worked on Wall Street, you know, bonuses would make up, uh, particularly for senior people, maybe 80% of their total comp- uh, compensation. Uh, I, I believe that's changed really since the financial crisis is that they've gone to more of a fixed salary model, but still uh, the bonuses have a big, big impact for a lot of folks. That's right, Paul. And while we're not talking about the outsized bonuses that, uh, you know, you might have been discussing in the 90s, but we're looking, bonuses are still a huge deal for everyone on Wall Street. So this come, comes as a very uh, disappointing signal. You know, the managers are managing expectations. And as Bonnie said, other banks are watching this closely as well to see how they'll compensate their staff and to kind of see what the herd is doing, right? This might be cover for other banks to say, hey, listen, B of A is not paying as much. And, um, you know, the environment is bad for everyone. On top of which, we have other banks that are actually planning to cut staff. So right now, B of A has said they're going to keep everyone's jobs safe this year. But then again, they're managing expectations that that might mean that everyone doesn't get paid as well. So what options do dissatisfied traders have? I mean, can they just walk across the street anymore? It it sounds like that's not really an option. And I think everyone is 
fully aware of that, right? It's still early days, and it's possible that managers can go back to you know executives and say, "Look, my team deserves more," and lobby really hard for more. Um, but still, you know, the jobs are are hard to come by these days on Wall Street, and I think everyone is pretty aware of that. So right now, I think a lot of traders are happy to still have their jobs, um, and so you know they they don't really have a lot of options, particularly if we think that next year there may be some more cuts to come across the industry. So have we heard anything, Lillian, from some of the other big players, the the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanleys of the world, or is, or is B of A out, kind of out front floating this idea? I think B of A is early floating this idea. And again, I have to stress that these are very early conversations. Paul, you know that you know there are some expectations yep. being managed early on, but that obviously this will raise the level of the discussion and, you know, cause a lot of debate, I think, to go on internally about uh, how much traders should be paid. Um, We are watching the other banks very closely as well to see what indications are coming out of them. Um, And the survey consultants that we talked to, you know, the recruitment consultants and the pay consultants have guided higher on trading. And so this comes as a real disappointment because the expectations were already set high for this trading bonanza. And now we're already starting to see early signs that that's really being tamped down across the street. And I think that that may be uh, a trend that we see with other banks coming in the, in the next couple of weeks. I mean, what can you do? It's not exactly like you can call in the union. Uh, what ha- happens in cases like this, Lanan? Surely we've seen it before. Yeah, it's interesting because I think on the street, um, you know, people talk about everything being very merit and performance based, right? And so a lot of people on the street, if they, if their division or their desk brought in, you know, a 20% bump in revenue, then they'd expect to get, you know, not, not exactly that amount, but at least directionally a good bump in their um, compensation, right? And so uh, I think this kind of flies in the face of uh, what people on the street, um, you know, really think they deserve. And um, it's, it's going to be a, a bit of a cultural shock, I believe, because, you know, it, it's just a very strange year. In a normal year, if the trading desk made a lot of money, you'd expect to get a decent bonus. And this year, I, I think just because of the broader context we're in, the bank's simply are aware that, you know, paying big banker bonuses is yes. not going to be a good look. Well, let's also just point out that uh, they're still getting bonuses, just not more than last year. But the sales and trading pool is at last year's level, even though revenue obviously has jumped this year. Lanan, we have to leave it there, but thank you. Fabulous story from Lanan Nguyen. And you can see it on your Bloomberg about Bank of America and uh, traders getting jolted there. A slew of data to parse through today. We had a whole uh, bunch of jobs data earlier this morning, durable goods orders. We have the FOMC minutes later this afternoon. And then, of course, the nomination of Janet Yellen to uh, be Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, when you have days like that, you just have to speak to Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence. She's a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us on a very busy Thanksgiving Eve. First off, I'd just love to get your thoughts on the nomination of Janet Yellen for uh, Secretary of the Treasury. Well, I think that this was a very convenient uh, political move on President-elect Biden's part. I'm I'm no big fan of it. In fact, I wrote a, a long book about it, uh, about and, and I detailed Janet Yellen's uh, philosophy in it, and we have to remember that she is a, a, a trained labor economist. So we, you think back to her days at the San Francisco Fed, and 
companies that we haven't talked about in years, like New Century and Countrywide Mortgage. These were in her backyard, and at the root of being unaware of the subprime crisis building on, on the West Coast was Janet Yellen's unappreciation and lack of knowledge and experience with the financial market. If you think back to a year ago uh, when we were in the not QE era and overnight repo funding strains and reserves not being kind of, these are very technical type of issues that as Secretary of the Treasury, you would need to be highly familiar with. So again, I, I think markets are applauding the fact that she has said that, that, that you could reopen the Federal Reserve Act and allow the Federal Reserve to buy stocks, that negative interest rates could be imposed under, the, under certain circumstances. I, I think she would certainly spearhead a, a digital currency in order to deliver money directly to individuals, helicopter money, so to speak. But again, um, these, are, these are the types of policies that have tended to, uh, to help out the top 1% looking back in, in history and, and end up being a, 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 a backlash, if you will, against those who need it the most. Yes. Do you think that just for the moment she will work sort of hand in hand with the Fed and try and do something in terms of retrieving some of those emergency funds that Stephen Mnuchin has put aside? Well, I certainly think that that will be priority number one. Uh, Of course, it's not as easy as, look, think of the months and months we've been watching Mnuchin go back and forth between McConnell and Pelosi. These are these you need an extremely savvy politician uh, to to make these deals. And it's not just a matter of flipping a switch. You have to get congressional approval uh, to have these funds reallocated. And we don't know for sure what Mnuchin's uh, motivations are, but this could be such that McConnell could, in the continuing resolution, December the 11th, have his skinny stimulus bill of a half a trillion. You tack on what has been taken away from the Fed and you get to a trillion, but politically the optics for McConnell would be very favorable because there would only be a new half a trillion stimulus package attached. So again, we don't know where Mnuchin's coming from, but we do know that Congress would have to would have to sign into law reopening these lines, these, these credit uh, facilities at the Federal Reserve. All right, Daniel, let's go to the eco page on the Bloomberg terminal here. What are some of your key takeaways here from some of the economic data uh, we saw this morning? So, you know, besides the, you know, as we were listening, um, coming into the segment, the back-to-back increases in regular state initial jobless claims, you know, we are trying at Quill Intelligence right now to, to kind of back into what the survey week looks like for non-farm payrolls. Next week is when we finally get the, we call it the bathtub, where you get every source of Americans claiming unemployment insurance in some form. We saw that tick up this week for the weekend at November the 7th for the first time since August. And we know that the last two weeks have come up. So we're anticipating that when we get that final print for the survey week, which always includes the 12th of the month, we get that next Thursday morning right before the payroll report. We're anticipating that that number goes up again. So you're seeing economists across the street scramble to take down their, their November unemployment payrolls forecast. And if you look inside the weeds of the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Report, you also saw that employment expectations came in at the lowest level since April. So we're definitely starting to see some backtracking in the labor data, which is, of course, key to a consumer-driven economy. 
So what are you anticipating, Danielle? Does this economy show more scarring than we're seeing forecasts of? I, I don't think, I think we're about six weeks behind Europe in terms of the coronavirus. Uh, and, and by the way, not imposing restrictions. So I, I do see economists across the pond taking down their Q4 estimates. And I would foresee that the United States could easily slip back in, into contraction, into recession at the end of the fourth quarter, going into the first quarter of 2021, given purely what we're seeing in terms of, 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 of people choosing to be less mobile in states where there are not even restrictions. And what we're seeing in terms of small business revenues and small businesses that are open, these are declining figures. Leisure and hospitality job openings have come down appreciably. They're their lowest since August. These are all signs that the economy is going into a retrenchment because the coronavirus is becoming so severe in the United States that it cannot be ignored. Danielle, it appears that we have a new president here. Um, It appears that it might be a split government once again in terms of uh, it appears that the Republicans may continue to control uh, the Senate. We'll have to see what happens in Georgia. How did you view, what was your key takeaway from this political season and kind of where we find ourselves now? Well, I think think more than anything else, the American voters have spoken that they're not divided at all. They're in the middle. When you look at the least appreciated, appreciated story of this last election, it is the change of, of, it, it's the change of the guard in the House of Representatives. And you know, Nancy Pelosi is going to have the slimmest margin of majority in two decades. And that, I think, is, is less appreciated uh, because you will have a, more of a bifurcation between the administration, assuming these two Georgia seats go to the GOP, which is a big assumption. But assuming that that is the, the, the case, you really will have the, an administration in one party and a Congress largely in the other. Danielle, really quickly, because we're out of time, do we get a fourth round of stimulus? Fiscal. Oh, oh, absolutely. I think that this will be priority number one. You're not going to see mass evictions and the CARES Act unemployment benefits expire when upwards of 13 million Americans are collecting these emergency forms of unemployment insurance. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us once again today. Danielle DiMartino Booth is CEO and Director of Quill Intelligence, former advisor, of course, at the Dallas Fed, also Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and she's based in Dallas typically. And we thank her again. That raft of economic data today will uh, pitch forward to the FOMC meeting and all of that later on. So do tune in from 2 p.m. onwards for all that emerges from there. For the longest time during this pandemic, oil has been just really hovering around that $40 level. We've actually had a lift here over the past uh, week or so. Uh, we're up another 1% today. Oil WTI oil trading at $45.35 per gallon. Again, a lift off of that $40 uh, range it had been hovering at for a long time. To get a sense of kind of what this means, what's driving it, uh, we welcome uh, John Kilduff. Uh, he joins us. He's a founder of Again Capital. John, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, it's, it appears that investors across various asset classes here are willing to look towards the other side of this pandemic and start to really discount uh, a pickup in economic activity uh, next year. What do you see in the supply and demand uh, of the oil markets globally? 
I mean, for oil, there's no doubt that that is the key factor here. Uh, oil has really been the COVID trade or pandemic trade or now vaccine trade uh, across all the markets. Um, I mean, you, we had a significant dip and, and things were looking rather bleak just a, several weeks ago uh, when we saw those renewed lockdowns in Europe and, of course, the rising caseloads here. But now with the success of vac- positive vaccine news, uh, that's exactly it. And the, the, the sort of connecting the dots here is that you can see the pent up demand, um, you know, for, for transportation, for travel. Um, just what we saw over the weekend where there was, you know, the highest number of airport uh, visitors since uh, early March. And so jet fuel has been crushed consistently down, Paul, 40 percent versus, you know, year on year measures. Um, And it's really been weighing that factor has really been weighing on this market. And the pent up demand is is, is obvious and it's going to come roaring back. And and I really see uh, a a big pickup next year uh, for gasoline and for, for jet fuel and diesel fuels. John, why are you convinced that this is longer than just a Thanksgiving blip? Well, I, I think there's the, the 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 hopefulness out there, and 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 you know, I hate to say it, but the apparent almost even disregard uh, for for folks that uh, they are going to uh, they're going to travel. I mean, they're 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 going to travel after this Thanksgiving. I think that there's the setup's going to be that you're going to go travel for Christmas as well, um, and get in their cars this time uh, e- even more so, and, and and continue to travel. The other thing too is I think people are starting to realize that uh, it appears that air travel. You know, is safe that the uh, the that the uh, the planes uh, air systems are not engendering or in, in inculcating uh, COVID nineteen cases, and I think that word is getting out there, and that is helping as well. So it, we're seeing we're seeing the beginning of the rebound, but the thing about it is that, as Paul mentioned, we're looking ahead here, and there's a ton of pent up demand that's going to hit the petroleum market. All right, so John, so that's kind of the demand side of the equation. Talk to us about the supply side globally here. How is OPEC behaving? How's Russia behaving? And, and even the U.S.? Well, they're, they're, uh, they're OPEC plus, which includes Russia, um, are, have been rather disciplined. I mean, they are itching to put more oil on the market, which is going to, I think, hold back any kind of potentially substantial uh, price rise. But I think the discipline should prove sufficient to get uh, certainly Brent over $50 a barrel with relative ease come the beginning of the new year uh, and push WTI prices similarly up towards that level. Uh, right now, if, if things were to snap back meaningfully, uh, we find ourselves in a very tightly supplied situation and, uh, and see a drawdown pretty quickly of global inventories. So, I mean, to the extent that these vaccines work out, and again, this uh, thesis of mine that the pent-up demand is there, um, it's going to get real interesting in 2021 in, in terms of uh, prices. And the U.S. too now haven't been, you know, just raked over uh, by this low-price environment. Um, we uh, the the U.S. is going to be a diminished factor, and certainly won't get the encouragement in terms of drilling uh, and exploration activity under the Biden administration that they had under the Trump administration. So that's also a factor. So what do companies do at a time like this when their stock prices are just all over the place, John? You know, every time oil goes up, they see a nice gain and then a loss. I mean, do they just ignore their daily stock market fluctuations? Well, they have to. And, I, and actually what they've been doing uh, is, well, suffering under it, suffering under the environment and, and really retrenching. I mean, there's been you know, considerable you know, capital expenditure cutbacks, uh, considerable you know, even self-examination 
uh, of what their future holds, in ter- especially with the, the climate uh, pushback movement. So, um, but yeah, I mean, so, you know, but you've seen the companies that have really done a yeoman's work on this, like Chevron, get, making themselves almost a bulletproof now, I think, uh, going forward. And if prices pick up, they'll only benefit, uh, I think, ExxonMobil to a, to a lesser degree. Uh, but, um, and the other players, the, the, the companies that are left standing in the aftermath of this are going to do well. It's like almost a free call option on oil prices going up from here. I think it's a very attractive sector uh, for, for the upcoming year. John, are we going to see some more pain in the oil patch here? Maybe it's more consolidation of some of the weaker balance sheet uh, players? There's no doubt the pain's not over yet. And I think to the extent that the prospects start to look brighter price-wise and industry-wide, uh, you'll see another round of, of the stronger, you know, like the Chevrons, getting back out there on the acquisition trail and, uh, and, and consolidating uh, their position even more so. So you're going to have a, a smaller group of, of stronger players with, the, with bigger portfolios of production, but also of discipline that they won't just drill for drilling's sake or to cover cash flow requirements for their, for their loans and, and indentures. They're going to, they're going to be moderate. And that would, that should also help to sort of set us up for a, a, a more consistent higher price than what we just went through. All right, John, always a pleasure speaking with you and getting an update. That is John Kildoff there, founding partner again, Capital. And of course, crude oil today above $45 a barrel once again, 45.33, up 1% or 42 cents for a barrel of WTI. And Brent crude is up above $48 a barrel. Of course, there's always that spread there between Brent and WTI. So a couple of little items to take note of. The FOMC meeting a little later on today. Some more certainty as to who we might be seeing populating the Treasury as well as, of course, the Federal Reserve over the next couple of years and the possibility that those people might actually cooperate. So let's bring in Laird Landman to see what all this means for markets. Laird Landman is co-director for fixed income at TCW, which is $235 billion under management firm wide. So Laird, how different does the landscape look today versus just last week uh, i think it's got we've gotten a lot of clarification because of these uh, political appointments that things are probably not going to be uh quite as radical as uh, uh people might have initially feared in terms of policy changes obviously there is some chance of increased cooperation uh as you pointed out between the, the fed and the treasury uh, I'm, I wouldn't be convinced for bond markets that that's a great thing. We could continue to see a trend of, of yield, yields going higher uh, in the face of that in the long end of the curve. So, Laird, we had just this morning a batch of economic data, and I guess we could call it mixed at best, durable good orders, uh, maybe better than expected. But, boy, the, the, uh, the labor market remains very challenging with uh, a stubbornly high jobless claims. What's your view of kind of where this economy is now and, and you know, how it would, may continue to progress? Well, we've come through a recession like no recession we've ever had. You know, wealth is up 4%. Personal incomes were up 6% over the course of this. But obviously, you point out the weak spot is, is unemployment. And when you dig into that number and you realize that we still have close to 20% unemployment for the lowest third uh, of, of earners, in the economy, there are people who have been extremely damaged uh, in this, and that's sort of covered up by this flood of money uh, into the financial markets and the bull markets we've seen in stocks uh, and corporate bonds and high yield. But underneath all this, I would say the underlying economic trends are not all that healthy. 
uh, and clearly the stimulus got into the economy, but I'm not convinced it, it went to the right people. If, if you uh, dine out as much as I did uh, once the, uh, the restrictions were lifted, you saw plenty of people at fancy restaurants uh, using those, uh, their, their, their uh, unemployment cards uh, to pay, pay for dinner. So I'm not sure that the money necessarily, it got into the economy, but I'm not sure it went to that lowest third. It got where it needed to get. Uh, to really uh, cure the problem. I think we still have to face the problem long term. For sure, though, obviously that, that would in itself have supported some jobs and so on as well. Laird, um, you said that yields might go up at the long end. Why would that necessarily be bad for markets? I mean, I understand just in terms of looking for return or what have you, but would it be such a bad thing if yields did go up a bit? Well, I don't think it's 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 not unhealthy for the economy. Obviously, if you own ten-year treasuries, um, you're not going to be cheering uh, as you see the prices go down as the yields go up. Um, so, I, I do think uh, it, it, it's indicative of I think a skepticism uh, when the Fed and the Treasury have historically worked together. That has long-term resulted in increased inflation and inflation expectations. Um, clearly, there's a lot of confusion in the market. Uh, regarding inflation, you know, tips are suggesting something a little bit above one and a half. Uh, when you look at some of the numbers that are actually coming in, um, they're consistent with that. When you take out some of the really inflating sectors of the economy, like housing, shelter, uh, and autos, you know, you get back down to about 0. 0.4, uh, 0. 0.5 on the core. Um, so there's, again, and, and of course in Europe, you have uh, some countries beginning to deflate actually. So I think there's a lot of confusion out there about that. Um, we don't think the underlying economy is healthy enough to support true uh, economic inflation, but you could get monetary inflation if you get too much cooperation between the, the uh, central bank uh, and the treasury. So Laird, uh, having spoken to you and your, your TCW colleagues you know, in the past, uh, definitely sense that you folks have a, a cautious view on the marketplace, maybe more so uh, than some of your peers. Where, given that backdrop, where do you see some opportunities here to deploy capital? Well, I think you can look uh, in a couple of places. One, it's very possible that the bull market uh, in corporate bonds continues because uh, we are going to continue to see a flood of money coming in from uh, Japan and Europe as our hedged yields uh, into corporate bonds is very attractive versus what they can uh, engineer. Um, at the same time, you have to be cautious. This will probably be one of the most Schumpterian periods that we'll ever see. There's dramatic changes going on in the economy. That will result in winners and losers, i.e. more defaults uh, in the bond market. So you have to really do your credit work uh, in here in picking these companies. Uh, the second place is obviously uh, some of the legacy non-agency bonds in the mortgage market will continue to look attractive, in our opinion. Obviously, there's been a huge move of, uh, of, of money into residential real estate, particularly in the suburbs. So even where you're seeing increased delinquencies, you're not seeing losses on those types of securities. So they still represent value uh, for the fixed income investor. CMBS, we think, will be an area that will be challenged over the next couple of years as they deal with the long-term effects, all those Shumterian effects uh, of work from home, uh, et cetera, that will have you know, pretty devastating effects um, on demand for re commercial real estate. 
Right. Mm. Hey, Laird, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate getting your thoughts here on the fixed income markets. Laird Landman, co-director for fixed income at TCW, a little shop out on the West Coast, and they have about $235 billion mm-hmm. from under management. And I tell you, when you go to LA, two big meetings you have to have. Number one is Capital Group, and the other one is TCW. Uh, just huge shops, just and they're all over uh, the marketplace. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.